Our sermon text is Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 1 through 18, and you can find on page 417 in the paper Bibles. The Son of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars, while their children remember their altars and their ashram beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the high mountains in the open country. Your wealth and all your treasures I will give you for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make, sure, I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, stretch the heart, search the heart, and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets rich, but not by justice. In the midst of his days they will leave him, and at his end he will be a fool." A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Behold, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. I have not run away from being your shepherd, nor have I desired the day of sickness. You know what came out of my lips. It was before your face. Be not a terror to me. You are my refuge in the day of disaster. Let those who be put to shame who persecute me, but let me not be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but let me not be dismayed. Bring upon them the day of disaster. Destroy them with double destruction." This is the word of the Lord. I uh, wonder if you can sense Jeremiah's frustration uh, in this passage. Um, he has been prophesying to the people of Israel, and his goal, the reason he's, he's at this, is God wants them to repent. They have been uh, sinning uh, grievous sins, um, uh, they, those sins have to do with abandoning the worship of God and worshiping false gods instead, but they also have to do with very practical things like uh, economic oppression, which is one of the things that's mentioned in this passage. Um, it's kind of like if Jeremiah's job was to get Wall Street tycoons to uh, be generous with their money, and he's standing out on the street on Wall Street day after day, saying, stop being so greedy, stop being so greedy, stop being so greedy. And what would the 
response of uh, the people who worked on Wall Street B as they walked by this nutcase day after day, uh, you, know, you know, in sackcloth and ashes, telling them to repent, repent, repent. Uh, they make fun of him. Uh, they mock him behind his back. They mock him to his face. They have him arrested. They throw him in a pit. Uh, they do all kinds of things to try to get this guy to shut up uh, and leave us alone and let us do what we want to with our own stuff. Um, and in this uh, passage, Jeremiah's uh, frustration with this is, uh, is kind of beginning to come out. Um, and he says some things here that are, are shocking. Uh, they were, would have been shocking and offensive to those folks, and they're probably shocking and a bit offensive to us as well. He says things like um, that the sin of these people is carved onto, the, onto their hearts with a diamond pen. Uh, man, you know, I've been trying to get you guys to repent for all this time, and you just ignore what I'm saying. Like, you know, God gave you his commands a long time ago. You're continuing to ignore them. You're ignoring me as I remind you of them. It's like your sin is just, just etched uh, deep onto your hearts. Uh, you know, is that something that we can tolerate? Is that an idea that we can even stomach that, that uh, our wrongdoing is, is deeply ingrained in our very hearts? Uh, I imagine that to Western Americans, that's uh, a, a shocking and offensive notion. Um, he says that flesh, that is humans, cannot be trusted or relied upon. Uh, he says that the human heart is full of deceit and fatally sick. And I wonder if, you know, as a North American, uh, you know, you find that uh, disturbing. You know, no, people are mostly pretty good. People are mostly pretty good. Isn't that what we think? You know, you know uh, one of our founding philosophical documents in this country by Ralph Waldo Emerson is called Self-Reliance. Uh, and that, that uh, essay, that philosophical treatise, really describes uh, what, human, what North Americans are like. We believe that the most important thing to do is to rely upon yourself. Um, and Jeremiah is coming right out and saying, that's a terrible idea. Um, you know, do you hear that, and do you think to yourself, uh, sorry, I'm going to put this up here. Do you hear that, and do you think to yourself, uh, I just, I can't, I can't buy that. Uh, no, the, you know, the most important thing is for us to rely on ourselves, to discover the truth for ourselves, to cling to it, to, to find our dreams and trust your heart. Um, like, yeah, like, you know, there's, in every Disney movie, there's at least one song that has that theme. Um, the, my, my current least favorite is from uh, Tarzan, where Phil Collins just over and over again is like, trust your heart, let fate decide, put your, put your trust in what you most believe in. And you're like, just, just like, not only is it stupid and redundant, um, but what a terrible idea, according to Jeremiah. Jeremiah says that the, that whole notion of trust yourself, trust your heart, is a terrible idea. That your, your heart is unreliable, it's deceitful, it'll trick you. And it's sick, desperately sick. Uh, I think a good translation of that would be sick unto death, fatally ill. Your heart has, has cancer. It's that sick, it's that perverse. 
uh, most of us probably chafe at that idea. Um, and if so, um, you know, I, you know if, if you hear that and you think, no, people are pretty good, people are pretty good, I, you know, the thing that I want to ask is, have you, have you lived on this planet for very long? Do you know many human beings? I mean, the reason that we chafe at it is because we want to believe that we're pretty good. That's the main reason that we chafe at it, but there's a lot of bad things in the world done by human beings. Um, you know, I think one of, one of my, uh, to me, one of just the biggest jokes in, the, in Western history is that Rousseau says that people are basically good and what makes them bad is society. The society of whom, Rousseau? The society of, of people makes people bad. <laughs> you're, you know, you're just kicking the can down the road. You're begging the question, Rousseau, to say that, that people are good, but society makes them bad because it's a society of people. You know, most of the suffering and evil in the world doesn't come from natural disasters, but it comes from what people do. It comes from the way people respond or fail to respond to natural disasters, and it comes even mostly from what people do to each other. So if it doesn't come from the human heart, um, where can it possibly come from? It's like it, you're saying it doesn't come from anywhere. Uh, you know, so let me ask you this question. Uh, why did you not become a juvenile delinquent? Why didn't you, when you were 12, 14, 15, start burglarizing houses or uh, join a gang and sell drugs? Or, you know, you could have made a lot of money doing that. Why didn't you do that? Why not? And that's a, that's a really, you know, you say, well, well I didn't want to do that. I was a good kid. I was a good kid. Um, you know, sociologists uh, wrestle with this question all the time because most people don't do those things. So why do the people that do do them do them? Why is that? What makes them do it is sort of the, one of the, the, the first questions that sociologists ask. Why do people do that? Why do they do, why do they do that? And, you know, that line of questioning has led people to uh, some very bad conclusions, some very uncomfortable and destructive conclusions and conclusions that are wrong. If you start with a question, what is wrong with those people who do those things? The answers that you start to come up with are, well, there's something wrong with them. There is something wrong in their brain. There's something wrong in their biology. There's something wrong with the shape of their head. And it all comes down to there's something wrong with their genetics. You start with the question, what's wrong with them? The only answers that you're going to come up with are, are, are going to be essential to those people in their physical bodies. And you, I mean, this is like... This is what people were doing in the 19th century. There was all kinds of theories about the shapes of people's noses and the size of their ears and the color of their skin uh, that led them to be criminals. And so the solution to that is eugenics. The solution to that is racism, classism. Uh, sterilize the people who have these tendencies. Make sure they don't breed. Make sure they don't reproduce. And eventually we'll have a good society. And it's wrong, wrong, wrong. It's not only like bad in its conclusions, it's wrong in its conclusions. It doesn't work. It's not how it happens. And the, the sociological theories that have been the most successful have been the ones, uh, you know, prim primarily by a guy named Travis Hershey, who says, 
that that's the wrong premise to start with. The question we should start with is, why don't the rest of us? You know, he starts, he starts with the quote, why, ask the Lord, why don't the rest of us? And then he gets some really fruitful answers. Like, people who don't become criminals are people who have a vested interest in the social structure. They are people who have a good reason to believe that if they follow the rules and obey the system, that it will work out for them. And so the people who become juvenile delinquents are people who look around themselves and look at the people who look like them and look at the people who come from their neighborhood and think, this system doesn't work for me and my kind. I need to find some other way. Staying in school and getting good grades uh, and going to college is not on the table for me and that's not going to get me what I need and so I need to come up with something else. The thing that's underneath this is the assumption that people will always do the selfish thing and the reason that some of us don't become juvenile delinquents is not because we're better than the people that do, it's because we believe that, that the best thing in our interest, the most selfish thing we can do is follow the societal structure and obey the rules. It's not because we're good people, we're just as bad as those other people. We're doing, we have the exact same motivation, which is to get financial security, to get what I need, to get my family out of poverty. We have exactly the same motivation, uh, we go about it a different way because not, not that we are better than they are, not that we are more morally, you know, that we're morally superior to them, but because we know that uh, those options will work for us. Or we do, if we don't know it, we have a reasonable belief that they will. Now the thing about it is, that's a really successful theory. That actually tells us something about what's going on. That works and it's true. But the assumption that's underneath it is that people are bad. The assumption that's underneath it is that crime is appealing. And that most people don't do it, not because they're moral people, but because they, they don't think that it will work for them. That they think another option is better and safer and will work better for them. So you see, uh, you know, social science actually agrees with Jeremiah's premise here, that the human heart uh, is going to tend toward selfishness. It's going to tend toward oppression. It's going to tend toward hurting other people to get what it needs if that's what's necessary. So this theory is successful because what Jeremiah says is true. People are not trustworthy on their own. Our hearts do have sin and selfishness written on them. Our hearts really are deceitful and desperately sick. Uh, the selfishness and deceitfulness keeps us from accomplishing any lasting good in the world. You know, why is it that, that uh, you know, after 10,000 years of human history, uh, we still have crime and oppression and uh, poverty? Uh, why, after all of this time, uh, human beings living in civilizations together, have we not figured any of this out? It's because uh, we have these sick deceitful, sinful human hearts. Now, this is the center of, of Jeremiah's song here, of his prophecy. The center of it is that the human heart is deceitful. Um, and he is telling them that they are not going to make any lasting good in the world uh, because of this indelible sin that's carved with a point of diamond into, this, into their stone-cold hearts. 
Now, now, why do I say that that's what he's saying, that they're not going to make any lasting good in the world? Um, so I want to point you to verse 4 real quick and show you where it says, uh, you shall loose your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land uh, that you do not know, for in my fire, uh, in my anger, a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Okay, so there's two words here, the heritage and, and in a land. And these are the first hints that uh, what Jeremiah has in mind through this whole prophecy is Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the story of the creation of the world, the creation of the first man and woman, and what God gives to them and how they lose it. Um, there are a number of things in this passage that are going to point us uh, back to look at Adam and Eve. Um, so this is one, this heritage, talking about their heritage and the land. Um, in verses seven, uh, 5 and 6, 7 and 8, talking about the curse and the blessing. These are pointing us back to Genesis 1. So let's, let's flip back there. All right? We're going to try to do this quickly. But, you got to, but to hear what Jeremiah is saying to these people, um, you, have to, uh, you have to have a grasp on what exactly uh, is going on. Okay, so, you know, page one, Genesis one. All right. In the beginning, God... Now, let, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to adjust your translation here. I don't do this very often, but I would translate it this way. In the beginning of God's creating of the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void, or the earth was uh, formless and empty. It was uninhabitable and uninhabited. Um, so that it's like he's saying, instead of saying, in the beginning God created the world, although we certainly believe that that's true, what the story is telling us, what this song of Genesis 1 is telling us, at the point at which, it's like he's saying, at the point at which we pick up the story um, of God's creating of the heavens and the earth, the earth was there, but it is empty and, and formless. And everything that God does after that is forming it, bringing order out of the chaos. And he gets to the point of creating the man and the woman. In verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And that's a, that's a way of saying that uh, there are many implications of that. But the biggest one is that he's going to represent us on the earth. He's going to rule and reign the earth as like a viceroy uh, of God. And let them have dominion, see, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and the livestock, over all the earth and every creeping thing that, that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God, and this is the first time the Bible says that God blessed anyone. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it which is continue this work I've been doing of bringing order out of the chaos. I'm giving you this world formed with full of life and vegetation and animals and fish and birds. Rule over it and continue to bring order to it. And then in chapter 2, you know the story. He plants, says he plants a garden and puts the man and the woman in it. He says, here's, here, here's a garden. Now, if, if God's planting a garden, the implication has to be that if there's garden, there's also not garden. And outside the garden is not garden. And the job of the man and the woman is to subdue the rest of the world and fill it. So make it into, make the rest of the world into a garden, make the rest of the world into a city that is subdued and full. 
make the rest of the world into my garden city. And that's their job. And in order to demonstrate that they continue to trust in him for their life, he gives them this one tree that says, don't eat this. Life comes from me. Trust in me for your sustenance. You can eat anything else, but don't eat this one. As a token, as a symbol, as a sign that uh, you know that your life comes from me, that you trust in me and not in yourself. And you're probably familiar with the story. The serpent comes along and tells them, if you eat this tree, you will be like God. And so what they do is instead of trusting in God, they trust in themselves. And as a result, instead of blessing, of you know, the blessing of the job, of filling the earth and subduing it, the ground is cursed. And so in, in Jeremiah 17, when he says, your heritage that I gave to you shall be loosened from your hand. The Israelites have been the recipient of, the, of Adam and Eve's responsibility. Um, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and the ground was cursed, he, God promised that he was going to bring redemption. And he brings redemption. He's promised that he's going to bring redemption through the family of Israel. And he gives them a land flowing with milk and honey. It's like a garden. That's theirs. And he gives them rest on every side. Now, fill the earth and subdue it. Be a light to the nations, he tells them. So their heritage is just, at, is just like Adam and Eve's. It's this land, it's this place from which subdue and fill the rest of the world. Okay. And so when he's telling them that their heritage is going to be loosed from their hand, he's saying that just like Adam and Eve, you're going to lose this privilege. You're go, you, sin is is written on your heart with a, with a pen of iron. The, the sin of Adam and Eve is still with you. Be, what, you know, and, what, and how, why? Because they trust in flesh and not in him. Um, the good that Adam and Eve are supposed to do in the world is the good that the children of Israel are supposed to do in the world. And just as Adam and Eve have that taken away from them because of their sin, because of the sin of Israel, because of the sin of Judah, God, their, their oppression of the poor, their trusting in themselves instead of in him and in false gods instead of in him, he's going to take it away. And they're not going to be able to do any good in the world. And that's the condition that we find ourselves in. Uh, this is the condition that we, that we come up against every election cycle with two sides going at each other. And if you elect us, uh, we're going to make everything good again. And if you elect the other side, they're going to destroy the world. And the other side says exactly the same thing. If you elect us, we're going to make everything good again. Uh, and if, but if you elect the other side, they're going to destroy the world. Uh, and because of our human sin, they're both right. Try as we might, uh, our efforts uh, to fix the world keep going wrong uh, not because there's something wrong with the world, but because there's something wrong with us, because our selfishness and our self-reliance keeps getting in the way, keeps perverting all of our best intentions. And so we are like this bird in verse 11 um, that gathers a brood that she did not hatch. You know, the picture that image, that if you're a, a bird and you say, oh, here's some eggs. I'm going to sit on these and hatch them, and then I'll have children. But they're the eggs of another bird. And so when they hatch, they go, you know, like the, uh, the, the kids' book by P.D. P. D. 
P.D. Eastman, you know, the bird, you're not my mother, you're not my mother. You know, and he goes looking for his mother. And, you know, if you're a, we are like this bird. All of our efforts turn to that, that we, we gather a brood that doesn't belong to us. And, and like, like birds that are the children of another bird, they go off to find their real mother, and we lose what we tried to get. Um, you know, maybe the, the final clue uh, that this is um, pointing us back to Genesis 1 is in verse 12, that it's a glorious throne set on high from the beginning, is the place of our sanctuary, that what Adam and Eve had in the garden was a place of God's sanctuary. And what the children of Israel had um, with the Ark of the Covenant and God's promises to be with them was a place of God's sanctuary where God would dwell with them. But just like Adam and Eve couldn't handle their one command, the Israelites couldn't handle their series of commands that God gave them. And in fact, actually, the, the image that we get is that the additional commands that God gives to them aren't to make it harder, they're to make it easier. Adam and Eve couldn't handle just the one simple command, and so God gives them a series of commands with layers of responsibility and, and means of repentance when they sin so that they could be restored, but they still can't do it. Their hearts are still uh, made of stone with sin etched in them. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who run away from you shall be written in the earth. Just like our sin is written on our hearts, as a result, all of us will be written in the earth. That our end is death. That the only end of our sinfulness, the only end for our uh, hearts that are torn by sin, is death and to be buried in the earth. And Jeremiah, after he has said all this, he prays. And he prays for himself. And this is one of the ways you know that this is uh, a condition, not just of these people that he's talking to, but he recognizes that this condition of sin written on our hearts with a deceitful heart, desperately sick, applies to all of us. And it applies to him. And he sees that because his prayer for himself, heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Even Jeremiah's only hope is for God to rescue him, for God to heal him. You know, you don't, you don't go to a doctor and say, heal me, heal me, heal me, unless you know that there's no other way. You know, you know the kind of thing. You cut yourself, you burn yourself, you know that you can, you can watch your body, we'll just fix it. It's not an emergency. It's when it's an emergency that you know you have no other hope, that you have to go to a physician and say, heal me, heal me, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. You know, Jeremiah says here, I have not run away from being your shepherd. I have not desired the day of sickness. You know what came out of my lips. It was before your face, he says to God. But the people that he's prophesying to won't hear him. The people that he's, his job is to get the people of Israel to repent so that they won't lose the land as God said that they would. So that the threat of the law won't come down on them. He's pleading with them to stop it. Stop it. Stop it. 
His job is to get it to stop. His job is to get it so that they won't have to be kicked out. His job is to see that they won't have God's judgment come down on them. His job is to be their shepherd. And he says, I have not run from being your shepherd. But look at how he prays at the end of this. Let those be put to shame who persecute me. That's all of Israel who won't listen to his message. Let them be dismayed, but let me not be dismayed. Bring upon them the day of disaster. Destroy them with double destruction. How does a shepherd pray that for his sheep? He knows everything that he has been saying in this passage is that the job that I've been given is hopeless. Uh, The only end for for this uh, evil is for us to be written in the earth. So God bring the day of destruction on them. They persecuted him. Um, They mocked him, and his response is, this is hopeless. God, you're just going to have to destroy them. Uh, Jeremiah is not a good enough shepherd. He's not a good enough prophet. He can't remove their carved sin. He can't uh, give them real living hearts for their hearts of stone with sin carved deeply into the point of a diamond. He can't fix their deceitful, desperately sick hearts. He can't take away their guilt, and he can't prevent them from being written into the ground. They need a better prophet. They need a better shepherd. Flesh is untrustworthy. But there was a true shepherd and a true prophet who was God who took on untrustworthy flesh and made it trustworthy. Jesus can remove the sin carved from our hearts because he's able to bear our sin for us. People mistrusted Jesus far more than they ever mistrusted Jeremiah. They persecuted him far more than they ever persecuted Jeremiah. But Jesus' response is to say, not to say, you know, Lord, bring double destruction on them. Jesus' response is to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We do deserve to be written into the ground, but Jesus was who was innocent, was written into the ground for us. And having been written into the ground, he was raised from the dead so that we no longer need to fear our own death. And in him, we have a source of life that we can trust in. Um, Our own, uh, if we're trying to trust in our own strength, Um, It's not just that Jeremiah is telling us that it's pointless. It's logically pointless. It's like trying to nourish yourself uh, by eating your own flesh. It can't be done. But in Christ, we have a source of nourishment. We have a source of life that he gives to us freely to feed us, to nourish us, and to empower us to go out and continue the mission that he gave to Adam and Eve, that he gave to Israel to subdue the world and fill it with life and goodness by his strength.